Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a fantastic show for you today. Many listeners will know that I've wanted for a long time to have some more regional anesthesia covered, and I'm thrilled that today we are going to do that because I have with me two of our fantastic regional anesthesiologists, Kara Segna, who is the program director for our regional fellowship here at Johns Hopkins and an assistant professor of anesthesia and specifically regional anesthesia, and... Hassan Reyes, who is also an assistant professor of anesthesia and regional anesthesia and is the associate program director for the regional fellowship. So, guys, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. Oh, thank you. We're so glad to be here. It's a pleasure being here, Jed. All right. Well, let's jump in. We're going to specifically cover upper extremity blocks in this one, and then we'll bring you guys back to do lower extremity and maybe even some others like truncal blocks as well. But let's start with the upper extremity. And Kara, maybe um, why don't you tell us a little bit about why we're starting there? All right. Hello, everyone. We are very excited to be teaching you about the upper extremity regional anesthesia today on ACRAC. We will cover basic anatomy, which blocks are appropriate for which surgeries, complications of blocks, and common questions that you will see on the ITE, basic exam, advanced exam, and oral board exam. When it comes to test taking, many questions involve regional anesthesia because it's simply easy to test. It doesn't change very often. And if you can really absorb this podcast, it'll be very low-hanging fruit for you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. These are questions that I've seen come up on ITE exams, board exams, and uh, definitely oral boards. They love to throw these in as grab bags on the oral boards. And so this is going to be really high yield. Um, So Hassan, Tell me a little bit about uh, what we're going to start off with. What what would you do in terms of a basic introduction to this topic? Uh, thanks, Jed. So starting off, um, uh, we'll take a general approach to regional anesthesia and then go specifically block by block during the uh, podcast. On a macro level, it's really important to know which block you want to use for which surgery. Just at the basic level. You need to have a basic understanding of dermatomes as well as less talked about osteotomes. 
Understanding the surgeon institutional uh, perioperative process is also key. Will you perform a single shot versus a catheter uh, nerve block? What type of local anesthetic do you want to use to achieve the perioperative goals for your institution? What are your goals for this particular block for this particular patient with all their comorbidities? All of these will be determined by your perioperative goals. Uh, patient analgesia is important, of course, uh, but maybe the patient needs physical therapy and you want to prevent a dense motor block in order to maintain range of motion, like for a lot of our post-op joint patients. And so we'll keep a, a standard approach. You try to do the same thing each time. Hopefully we'll maintain a certain amount of quality. Uh, keep your anesthesia hat on at all times. The day before surgery, conceptualize your plan. Complete a chart review looking for comorbidities and nerve injury in the extremity that you'd like to block and then determine which block you'd like to use. On the day of surgery, do a focus history and physical of your patient and complete a physical exam on the extremity to be blocked. There are many reasons one should not receive a block. One simple thing is to make sure the surgeon is physically available so you can proceed with surgery. It's pretty important. In the, uh, in the pre-op area, look for signs of nerve injury uh, in the uh, extremity in question. That's numbness, tingling, weakness, and muscle wasting. Discuss risks with your patient, uh, which include bleeding, infection, pain, nerve injury, local anesthetic toxicity, and even block failure. Um, final, uh, finally, uh, look out for absolute contraindications such as patient refusal, no means no. Uh, make sure there's no infection over the area where you plan to block. Dragging an infection on the, from the skin into the brachial plexus is, is not the best practice. I wouldn't recommend it. And then you can go on to relative contraindications, perhaps extensive prior nerve injury, and that's a conversation you can have with the patient. But blocking an upper extremity and then having the case uh, canceled puts you in a difficult situation. A numb arm without a surgery is a procedure without any uh, benefit. Mm-hmm. All right. And once the patient is consented and you've done a timeout and you're ready to proceed, the patient should have standard ASA monitors attached and uh, specifically EKG, I get asked about this one a lot. EKG is necessary. Um, I want to emphasize that uh, heart rhythm and rate monitoring is important um, to make sure that the patient doesn't get early signs of LAST syndrome. Uh, for our trainees out there, that's cardiac and neurologic depression from an overdose of local anesthetic. And LAST is an acronym, right? It stands for local anesthetic systemic toxicity. That's right? right. Exactly. Okay. Great. So, Hazan, let me ask you a couple things. So, you mentioned uh, evidence, looking for evidence of prior nerve injury, right? So um, if someone has numbness, tingling, weakness, and so would that uh, mean you wouldn't want to do a block because then it might cloud the picture or you just want to be aware of exactly the extent of the deficit? Uh, that's a really good question. And so, and we'll dive into this a little bit further also. Um, but for, and this is different for a lot of different practitioners. Um, if you have a certain amount of dysesthesias and previous nerve injury, your risk of nerve injury moving forward may be increased. It depends on the type of lesion. Um, local anesthetics are neurotoxic by definition. They numb. That's their job. Right. And that can be the second hit uh, that causes a, a nerve to be injured further. Okay. So at the very least, you want to, if someone has pre-existing damage, you want to think about it pretty hard. You want to think about it, and perhaps that changes your choice of local anesthetic. Maybe it's something that's more dilute. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's not a catheter. Maybe it's just a single shot. A lot of things you can consider. Also, the, the patients may not be comfortable knowing that they're at increased risk for nerve damage when they already have nerve damage. It, yeah. may, it just, it's very scary for them. 
Totally. That sounds like really important stuff to be aware of beforehand. All right. So let's see. Uh, Randy Travis drinks cold beer seems to come to mind as a way to remember the brachial plexus uh, kind of divisions. So, um, Kara, uh, remind us what the divisions are and what anatomical landmarks differentiate uh, the different areas of the brachial plexus. Absolutely. So we are going to start um, up at the neck at the um, the vertebra, you have roots, trunks, divisions, cords, and branches. And what's going to be important for you to pay attention to for the um, basic exam and for the ITE is going to be anatomical landmarks for where the brachial plexus does um, change into the next um, piece of the plexus. So from roots to trunks, the landmark is going to be the anterior scalene muscle. Then when you change from the trunks to the divisions, that is going to be at the first rib. When you change from the divisions to the cords, it's going to be at the clavicle. And then lastly, when you change from the cords to the branches, that landmark is the pectoralis minor muscle. This may not seem super important to you right now, but for testing purposes, it is very high yield. Great. All right. So, Hassan... Do you want to remind us what are the nerves that make up the brachial plexus and what are some standard blocks that you do to block those nerves? Yeah, a lot of highly testable stuff here too. Uh, thanks for the question, Jed. It's The brachial plexus is primarily made up of uh, C5 to T1 with minor or absent contribution from C4 and T2. Uh, as far as the standard blocks go um, and the blocks that we're going to hit the hardest here in this podcast – you have the interscaling, supraclavicular, infraclavicular, and axillary nerve blocks. Uh, from completeness, and just because there are some questions um, um, on some of the more minor blocks, we'll also mention uh, beer block and uh, superficial cervical plexus. Um, I'll, and one important point for all of these blocks, uh, you do want to make sure you understand the implications of anticoagulants and platelet inhibitors. Um, Please refer to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Acute Pain, or I should say pain medicine guidelines for upper extremity blocks. There's a, actually a handy app uh, available to download on your phone uh, for free, just for your information. That's great. And is that app from ASRA? The- it's from ASRA. It is, and That's it's right. regularly updated. And as regional anesthesiologists, we often use this. Sometimes I use it every day, both in my practice and for teaching. Yeah. And we'll say that uh, with the advent of all these new anticoagulants uh, that you'll have to be updated on for the exam, but we'll have to keep up with with uh, nerve blocks as well. Uh, the app's a nice guide. Great. All right. So that app sounds like a great thing to download, especially for trainees out there and anyone doing these blocks. Um, so we've got both deep and superficial blocks. Is that right? Of the upper extremity? Yes. So ASRA does put out guidelines and they do make recommendations based on whether a block is deep or superficial. And we get asked about this quite often, whether or not we can do a block on a fully anticoagulated patient. And the answer is quite simple. If you are able to compress any hematoma that you um, may accidentally cause, then it is superficial. If you cannot, it is deep and that is going to be way more of an emergency. So for our purposes, something such as the act axillary block, which is, you know, in the axilla that is very easily compressible, but maybe something such as an infraclavicular block um, is depending on um, patient size and conditions, you may not be able to compress as easily. Right. All right. That's a good extinct, uh, that's a good um, distinction to make. And then, uh, Kara, let me ask you what, uh, in terms of questions that might come up on exams around the ASRA guidelines, uh, what do you think people might see? 
All right. So when it comes to ASRA guidelines and anticoagulation for the upper extremity block, they are, there's not that many compared to what you're going to be asked with anticoagulation and neuraxial anesthesia, mm. which would be your epidurals and paravertebrals. Yeah. So as far as um, the upper extremity block, the what what you need to like a basic question could be um, how long do you need to wait before placing a peripheral nerve block after someone's taking say warfarin, heparin, or gatchaban? And the answer um, on most oral board questions, because that's where you'll really see it, is it depends. Most upper extremity blocks are considered superficial blocks. Like I said, can you compress it? However, take caution with the infraclavicular block, which can technically be deep and difficult to compress. What if you're placing a catheter? It's the same guidelines as with the single shot um, block based on compressibility as superficial or deep as well as vascularity in the area. Great. All right. So Hassan, uh, why don't you start by telling me and our listeners about an interscalene block. This is one that we talk about and do all the time and probably important to know. All right. So uh, uh, like all of our upper extremity blocks, you're going to start off with standard ASA monitors. Um, you're going to have the patient positioned uh, with the head of the bed up 30 degrees um, in the semi-recumbent position. Uh, some people's numbers is a little bit different, 45 to 15, whichever you feel like works best for you. That's my number there. Um, and the head will be turned away from you. Uh, you'll be on the uh, block side. You'll be looking at the ultrasound on the opposing side of the bed. And um, you'll place your ultrasound probe, look for the uh, snowman symbol, um, and then uh, represent the roots and trunks uh, of the brachial plexus. And you'll inject local between the anterior and uh, middle scalene uh, muscles. I like to inject below the plexus just to stay away from the nerves to avoid nerve injury. The closed claims database and the interscalene uh, nerve block is one of the main culprits for nerve injury, so we need to be really careful. Mm. Um, and this block um, is indicated for more shoulder to uh, elbow procedures. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, or there's a good, there's more significant ulnar sparing, and so you may not want to use it for hand procedures. Okay, so you might miss the ulnar. Uh, and there is it true that uh, the tell me a little about the snowman symbol. What exactly uh, is that? Sure. So the snowman uh, symbol uh, is basically a cross section of the roots and trunks that you're looking at. Um, the top one is C5, and traditionally the uh, middle and lower trunks, kind of like a traffic light or snowman, are C6 and C7. Um, more cadaver studies are now showing us that. Uh, the bottom two may be a bifurcation of C6. And so it's going to be really important to not go between the middle and lower uh, trunks because you may be going squarely intraneural there. Okay, good to know. Uh, so, Kara, uh, let's get back to the questions. What, what's a typical question that might involve the interscaling block? Absolutely. For all you listening out there, interscaling blocks are actually heavily tested on all four exams, the ITE all the way through the oral boards. And many times they, they ask these these questions for interscaling in two different ways. They're going to ask about like nerve damage or what does this nerve do here or what's missing. Um, lots of complications with the interscaling block or they're going to show you a, a picture of this snowman symbol that we're talking about and it's going to have a star on it, whether it's the anterior scaling, the middle scaling, uh, the C5 at the top. 
Um, so be prepared. Do some image searches and look at the interscaling ultrasound picture. So you've uh, very kindly given me some examples, and, and why don't I ask you? So we'll simulate as if we're on an exam. So. Let me ask you this. Which of the following nerves is often missed when utilizing an interscaling block for a shoulder procedure? And then you'd, of course, have some answer choices if it was the, um, a multiple-choice exam. So um, the ulnar sparing is very rampant for an interscaling block, and it is seen in up to 20% of blocks because when you are trying to give analgesia for the shoulder, you really just need to anesthetize C5, which is the top of that snowman. And then as uh, Dr. Raya said, when you look at the bottom part of this traffic light or the snowman, uh, you may get C7, C8, you may not, and that is where the ulnar sparing comes in. So it is very, it is not abnormal for patients to be able to move their fingers, specifically their pinky. Great. All right. Let's try another one. You are utilizing a nerve stimulator for placing an interscalene catheter, and you note the diaphragm moves. How should you move your needle? So the reason that the diaphragm is moving is because the phrenic nerve actually lies on the belly of the anterior scalene muscle. So if you're noticing movement of that diaphragm, you want to start directing your needle posteriorly. Um, in addition to this kind of question, it could also be asked in the opposite way. So if you notice that the trapezius is activated by your stimulator, you're going to want to um, change that needle to be a, a more anterior approach. And I do really want to stress here the importance of the fact that due to the location of the phrenic nerve on that anterior scalene muscle, it is blocked 100% of the time. So that is a very easy test question that sometimes people miss because no one thinks it'll ever be 100. It absolutely is. Right. That is one of the few times where the answer is always, right? Okay. So you're always going to end up blocking the phrenic nerve. Um, all right. How about another one? What level is this uh, block performed at? So the inner scaling um, approach is going to be at C6, and the anatomical landmark is going to be Chassignac's tubercle. The um, inner scaling approach will, is going to block the brachial plexus at the level of the root's trunks, and there's actually a little bit of debate of which one you are blocking because, as I said previously, the anatomical landmark for the change is when the nerves pass through the muscles. Okay, fantastic. So those were some um, types of questions that might appear on the basic exam. Uh, let's move to some that might be a little more advanced, maybe for the advanced exam. So what are the complications of an interscaling catheter? So um, the complications of doing an interscaling approach, as I mentioned, are 100% phrenic nerve paralysis. You could also have an inadvertent vertebral artery injection and blockade of the sympathetic cervical chain, the stellate ganglion, to the face. This is going to cause what we remember from medical school, a Horner syndrome, meiosis, ptosis, and anhydrosis. You could also, because there's not a lot of real estate in the neck, so if you give a little bit too much, it's going to go everywhere. So you could also accidentally um, anesthetize the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which um, would cause the patient to have a hoarse voice. So a common way that complications about interscaling um, blocks are asked on exams is, for example, which complication leads to hypotension and bradycardia? And the answer is a total spinal, because we are very close to the um, cervical vertebra. Okay, great. So now let's look at something that might be more uh, on oral boards. So it's maybe something like this. You decide that you would like to place an interscaling block for a shoulder surgery in the outpatient center on someone who has morbid obesity and COPD. 
which is a safer technique, nerve stimulator or ultrasound? And is an interscaling block safe in someone with COPD? So this is a great question. Clinically, believe it or not, there is no evidence currently that one technique is safer than the other when comparing ultrasound to um, nerve um, stimulation. So therefore, the best way to minimize nerve injury is to limit trauma to the neural fibers. So this is why we would prefer awake patients who can let us know when they are having a paresthesia. Because if someone has a paresthesia, which looks very similar to someone saying a lightning shock just went down my arm, you want to um, pull back your needle just a couple millimeters to get off of that nerve. With someone with COPD, it depends on their clinical state and dependence on their accessory muscles for respiration, whether or not you would want to approach this block. Um, If someone has mild COPD and no oxygen requirement, then they could probably tolerate that that hemidiaphragm side effect from the 100% blockage of the phrenic nerve. Um, If they are wheezing with an oxygen requirement or using their accessory muscles, this is definitely not the block for them. They will decompensate and you're going to have a big problem on your hands. Um, I do want to point out for the oral boards, um, do not get fancy with like other fancy blocks. So you can't do an interscaling, but say you could do a suprascapular with an axillary nerve combination, um, for the oral boards, if it's not something standard, just default to general anesthesia, that's going to be a lot better for you. Yeah, keep it simple uh, and you'll be in good shape. All right, so those are some great questions, great practice, questions for the different exams. Let's move on. Hassan, uh, the next block maybe we should talk about if we're just kind of going superior to inferior would be the supraclavicular. So tell me a little about that. Right, absolutely. And uh, just like you said, Jed, you know, we're moving down to the divisions from the roots and trunks, and that's a supraclavicular nerve block uh, level. Uh, we'll start off by, like we always do, applying standard ASA monitors. Uh, positioning is going to be pretty similar to the interscaling. Semi-recumbent position, uh, head up 30 degrees with the patient's head turned away from you, ultrasound on the opposite side of the bed. You're going to place your probe on the clavicle and then uh, move up into the groove above the clavicle. And you'll identify the subclavian artery and the divisions and then uh, tilt your probe so that your uh, artery is sitting on the first rib. Uh, And the first rib will be a nice uh, floor so that if you're putting your uh, needle in what we call the corner pocket uh, of the uh, subclavian artery, it's a nice barrier between you and the lungs. It's it's not super helpful to block the lungs. Yes, you don't want to go in the lungs. All right. So that's what you're going to look for and where you're going to go. And then uh, what is it going to look like? So what you're going to do is uh, uh, move around your uh, bundle of grapes uh, that we're calling the divisions. Now, what's really important here is that your hypoechoic structures, the darker circles, that's your dense nerve tissue. That's what you don't want to uh, move into with your needle, right? You have brighter tissue that's connective tissue. And that's much more forgiving as far as you uh, creating a pathway with your needle. And uh, you'll inject your um, local in a perineural fashion uh, in the corner pocket and above the divisions, and you'll have steady diffusion into the plexus. And what kind of uh, surgeries are we using this for? So the, the uh, main indications for a supraclavicular nerve block are mid-humerus and distal uh, procedures. Great. So, Kara, let's look at some questions for these as well. Again, starting with the basic exam style questions. What part of the brachial plexus is blocked with a supraclavicular block? 
So when taking a supraclavicular approach, you will be blocking the trunks of the brachial plexus. And as mentioned before, they're very tightly bundled, and that's why they're called a bunch of grapes. This is one of the most reliable blocks that will give you a surgical anesthesia. So it is um, very popular around with, with many anesthesiologists around the country. Great. What brachial plexus block is associated with the highest rate of pneumothorax? So believe it or not, it is not the infraclavicular. It is the supraclavicular block that is that is associated with the highest rate of pneumothorax. And it can be high. It can be as high as 6%. And this is because of location, um, proximity to the lung. So according to recent studies, this risk is decreased when using an ultrasound and increased in those with bullous lung disease and smokers. But it's a, this is a, a high-yield fact that's often tested. Great. And so, you know, Hazan had said you've got the first rib there. You don't want to go beyond. And yet, obviously, you can go beyond and then you're in the lung. Yes. All right. Let's do some oral board style. So how is something like this? In an outpatient center, a patient is having thumb arthroplasty. He's a two-pack-per-day smoker with COPD and a home oxygen requirement. He's requesting a block. Which block would you choose and why? So there are a couple different blocks that you could do for a thumb arthroplasty. Supraclavicular block, as we're talking about now, is possibly contraindicated. I personally would choose an axillary block if I was doing an oral board exam. A patient with COPD and a home oxygen requirement depends on accessory muscles to breathe. The supraclavicular block has way less of a risk of phrenic nerve paralysis compared to the 100% with, this, with the um, interscaling block. Um, however, it's still pretty high at about the 50% range. This patient is also at risk for pneumothorax due to a smoking history, which could be disastrous. So I would definitely choose axillary block. Great. And then uh, we'll obviously get to axillary block, but that's a little farther down. What if he had normal functioning lungs, but has a history of previous nerve injury with numbness and tingling in his hand at baseline? What would you do then? So we did discuss this a little bit before. I would prefer not to block someone with a previous nerve injury. The block has a risk of further injury that could be muddled with nerve damage from the surgeon or from um, the previous injury. Um, as a side note, this is not an oral board answer, but the average risk according to the ASA closed claims is roughly in the um, the range of 0.01% risk of nerve damage. And when looking at the closed ASA claims, the um, with regional blocks, the majority of nerve injury does occur with the brachial plexus. Okay, great. So you would, uh, and I always think on the oral boards, it's better to be conservative. So I think, you know, if someone's got nerve injury, probably the right answer there is going to be to say no. Um, all right. So Hassan, let's move on down and talk about the infraclavicular, infraclavicular block. Uh, tell me about that one. All right. With the infraclavicular nerve block, we move down from the divisions to the cords. Um, and the position is going to be a little bit different for this one. Uh, We'll have a patient in a, a supine position uh, with the head turned away from you, the arm bent at 90 degrees and abducted uh, and angled above the head. Uh, why do we do that? This will move the clavicle up and improve your view while doing the nerve block. Um, usually I stand uh, at the head of the bed with the ultrasound at the feet of the patient. Um, again, straight in front of you, maintaining that uh, straight relationship between you and your ultrasound and your block. 
and uh, place your ultrasound below the clavicle, identify the axillary artery and vein, and then move forward and identify the cords, and you can move forward with your block. And then what are you looking for on this one? Uh, so essentially, uh, it's more of a steeper angle, which is part of the reason why we abducted the arm, and uh, we're going to inject uh, below the um, axillary uh, artery and get a U-shaped spread uh, going around the axillary artery. So you inject below, and it should spread up to both sides uh, of the artery. Great. All right. And Kara, uh, are there frequent questions about this block in particular? Actually, no. Um, when it comes to all four types of exams from ITE to oral boards, questions involving the infraclavicular block are pretty few. If you are going to get a question, it's going to be um, more such as which part of the brachial plexus is blocked, and as we covered, it's the cords. Or it's going to be another one of those situations. They love to put ultrasound pictures where you can... Um, with a little star and you have to label what you see in the ultrasound. And when you when you have that, you've got to just remember the artery is the axillary artery. And then when you're looking at this picture, if you can det- distinguish lateral versus medial, hopefully it is uh, labeled for you. Um, the obviously lateral side has the lateral cord to the axillary artery. The medial side has the medial cord and the one right below is the posterior cord. So it's pretty, this one's pretty straightforward as long as you can get your direction. Great. All right. So. Oh, also just one thing to add. Remember, this is the one block of the brachial plexus that is considered a deeper block. And we, yeah, so with all the complications we talked about, a little yes. riskier if, uh, or significantly riskier if the patient is anticoagulated. And the phrenic nerve, you can actually still uh, paralyze it with this block, but it's much, much lower. Now we're talking the 10% range. Great. All right. So let's move to my favorite block, the axillary nerve block, my favorite only because it's the one I predominantly did as a resident when I was actually doing these blocks, uh, the axillary nerve block, which we touched on already. Hassan, tell me a little bit about that one. Well, you must have done really well on exams because it's very heavily tested, Jed. The uh, axillary nerve block is a similar position to the uh, infraclavicular nerve block. Supine, the patient's head is away from you, uh, arms abducted and uh, over the head at 90 degrees. Um, Position is going to be really key for this one. Uh, If you can't abduct the arm uh, for any reason, um, you probably won't be able to do this block. You really do need access to the axillary region. Um, And so essentially with this nerve block, it's a perivascular block. And within the coracobrachialis uh, muscle, you'll find the musculocutaneous. And you'll find that this relationship is really important to test questions. And you're essentially going to do a perivascular injection uh, with the axillary artery and get your terminal branches um, while also having to make sure that we get the musculocutaneous uh, nerve within the muscle. Great. All right. And what kind of surgeries are we using this for? Primarily, we're going to use them for more distal procedures. Hand procedures are usually the classic indication for it. All right. And then any contraindications that are any different than what we've talked about with others? Uh, Luckily for this one, uh, the contraindication profile is pretty good. It's pretty superficial block as far as the anticoagulated patient goes, although you have to be careful. It is perivascular. Not uh, super concerned about any pulmonary issues or phrenic nerve blockade. Um, the main thing, got to make sure the patient's able to maintain that position for the block. We need access to the axillary region. Great. All right. So, Kara, let's do some questions. Um, so, some kind of basic uh, exam type questions. If you were to stimulate the musculocutaneous nerve, how would that manifest? 
So stimulation of the musculocutaneous nerve would manifest as flexion of the elbow. And as um, as mentioned earlier, the axillary block is very much tested. So they can ask this question in, in other ways as well. So another way that you could be tested on this is um, you are performing an axillary block and the patient cannot flex at the elbow. What nerve was missed? And it would be the musculocutaneous nerve. And that would be if the patient can still flex at the elbow, right? Then you missed it. Uh, yes. I'm right. sorry. Yes. Right. Perfect. So if you if they can still flex at the elbow after you did your block, then you must have missed the musculocutaneous nerve. All right. What about um, if you stimulate the uh, radial nerve? What will you see? Extension of the digits. Great. How about the ulnar nerve? Adduction, A-D-D-duction of the thumb. Great. And the median? Pronation of the forearm. Great. So those are just so ripe for asking on a test, right? Easy, quick, you know, you just either know it or you don't. So worth spending some time. Um, What part of the brachial plexus is blocked when you're doing an axial nerve block? You will be blocking the branches of the brachial plexus. Great. And what nerve is commonly missed in an axillary nerve block? So this is very often tested. You will be missing the musculocutaneous nerve. And then they will further ask you what muscle is it embedded in. It is the coracobrachialis. Great. All right. And then um, you might have an ultrasound image type question maybe with pictures of an axillary artery. And then uh, you might have some stuff labeled on there. What would that look like? So this is very high yield. I highly suggest that you memorize the ultrasound um, marked image of the axillary block. So what it's going to look like is if you, again, you have your median and your lateral views, the musculocutaneous nerve is going to be the one all lateral out in the lateral left field in the middle of a muscle. So that one's very easy to identify. So then you want to um, identify your axillary artery, which should be very easy to see. It'll be a big um, black um, ball basically in the middle of the ultrasound. And then um, you're going to want to identify your ulnar, your radial, and your median nerves. And they'll prob- that's probably what they're going to ask you. So when you're looking at the artery and you figure out median and lateral, the, the ulnar is typically the black nerve ball that is most lateral into the side of the artery. Underneath the artery is where you're going to find the radial, and on top of the artery is where you're going to find the median. That is very high yield. Please look at a picture. Absolutely. All right. And we'll try to uh, get an image, maybe a labeled image that we can put up uh, in the show notes as well for people to check out. We'll also put some references there that I'm sure we'll have uh, some of this stuff in there. So, um, And you can obviously go to some websites like um, Nisora, right? And uh, they've got all kinds of labeled images. So lots of easy ways to study this stuff. Um, and it is very, very high yield. Let's talk about maybe an oral board style question. So let's say you have a patient who fell down a flight of stairs and traumatically broke their wrist. They have a severe they have severe COPD and are fully anticoagulated because of a cardiac issue, maybe like uh, atrial fibrillation, or they have a cardiac valve uh, that they're anticoagulated for. They have a poor airway on exam. They're NPO and scheduled for surgery. Could you do this case under regional anesthesia? Absolutely. You could definitely do this under regional anesthesia, and you do have some options. You have the supraclavicular block, the infraclavicular block, and the axillary block. And of course, no one's going to let you get away with that broad answer on oral boards, so they're going to make you say, which one would you choose? So to avoid affecting the phrenic nerve, um, which would you know, be an issue for someone with severe COPD, and um, to avoid 
having difficulty with the full anticoagulation, which would affect the infraclavicular, I will choose an axillary block because at the axillary level, you have a 0% chance of phrenic nerve paralysis, and it is considered a superficial block. Great. All right. So nice definitive answer. 45 minutes into the case, your patient starts complaining of tourniquet pain. How would you evaluate this? So everyone, this is a very important question. It is highly tested. So first, what you should do is a physical exam. Now, assuming that the patient is unable to move or feel his hand um, and that the pain is limited to the tourniquet, um, you should start to consider that the the, the issue is that um, there is a small part of the the upper arm in the the medial area that is not covered by um, a nerve from the brachial plexus. It is called the intercostobrachial nerve, and it originates from the lateral cutaneous branch of the second intercostal nerve at T2. So, what you would simply do here is a supplemental block. By using local anesthetic, you just create a superficial wheel in the axilla. It's very simple to similar to an ankle block if you're familiar with those, but at the axilla level. Great. And I know some people do this prophylactically. They'll just do that wheel in the axilla at the same time they do their axillary nerve block, and others will, as in this question, wait. And if you get the tourniquet pain, then you go ahead and do it. Right. And I would say uh, if you're going to do a block uh, as a primary anesthetic, then it's it's almost essential. It's it's a really nice um, adjunct to your primary block. Great. So Hassan, let's talk about some complications. Obviously, anytime you're doing a nerve block, one of the things you're going to think about is the potential for nerve damage. How do you conceptualize that, and and how do you decide if that's happened? Right. And first and foremost, um, you know, obviously, no one wants to injure a, a patient, and uh, part of it's going to involve what do I tell my patient. Um, and, and we have a certain amount of information that we can relay. Uh, most injuries uh, will resolve in two weeks, and they'll resolve on their own. Uh, in general, uh, more than 90% of neurological injuries are related to peripheral uh, nerve blocks will, result, uh, will uh, uh, resolve within four to six weeks, and over 99% will resolve by one year. Uh, so it's very much a transient process, and you can reassure your patient with that. The main factors affecting recovery include the mechanism of nerve injury and the patient's own comorbidities. And uh, a lot of times you'll be having this discussion with patients with uh, pre-existing nerve injury, more likely. And so those patient comorbidities are going to be related to that. Um, make sure, in, if this ever happens to you, to may, and to the patient, obviously, um, although it feels like it happens to both of us, right? Absolutely. Um, make sure to review your drugs that were administered and whether there were adjuncts to use. Um, the only FDA-approved adjunct at this time is epinephrine. Um, the uh, uh, next thing you should do is calculate the time from the administration of the medication to the time of the complaint of the potential nerve injury. Um, and why do you want to do that, Hazan? So you want to have proper timing of... Uh, uh, different measurements that you can use to pinpoint what type of nerve injury there is. Uh, EMG, for example, will measure muscle response or electrical activity in response to direct muscle stimulation. Um, and the timing of this is going to be really important. And uh, we'll actually, I'm not going to spoil our question, we'll get to that in just a moment. Sounds good. Um, what types of nerve damage do we see from uh, nerve blocks? 
So there are five types of nerve damage, uh, ranging from neuropraxia, which is temporary conduction block with preserved axons, to complete neurotenesis, which is complete transection from axon to epineurium. And um, the major... The major one there being neurotenesis, uh, where what we talked about uh, prior to this uh, being a transient process for your patient, if the patient's undergone neurotenesis, that's really where discussion might change, where it may not be so transient. So that's that that 1%, right? 99% of the time Mm -hmm. it'll resolve by a year, but in that extreme example, it might not. Exactly. So, Carol, let's look at some questions. Um, What are the layers of a nerve from outside to inside? So this is a great question for the ITE or the basic exam where they may just have one of those answers where you have to pick the correct order. So the layers of the nerve from outside to inside would include the nerve and then the epineurium, the perineurium, which surrounds the fascicles, and then the endoneurium, which holds the myelinated axons. Great. All right. Oral board style, maybe something like this. Post-op day one from an outpatient elbow surgery under regional anesthesia, the patient calls you distressed, saying that they still cannot move their arm. What advice do you give them? Well, the first thing that you should do is validate that this is a very distressing time for the patient. And then you want to ask them if they can answer some questions for you so that you can direct their care. First, the first thing you need to do is review what type of block it was. What local anesthetic was used, and were there adjuncts added? What time was the block placed? Potentially on post-op day one, the patient may still be in the normal window for a functional block. And um, then lastly, you want to review if there are any pre-existing conditions. You would also, if you, when you have time, want to read the block note to see if there were any paresthesias during the procedure, which would indicate that this could be nerve damage. If in the end you feel that this is a nerve injury, you want to reassure the patient that almost all function, as Dr. Rye said, will be back within two weeks, and you will be following up very closely to check in. I personally, if I see this, call them every single day. Mm-hmm. It is um, too early at this point to undergo EMG testing on post-op day one, as the degree of muscle denervation that occurs after nerve injury cannot be determined until axon degeneration is complete. And this can take us... Um, a a different period of time as short as one week to as long as four weeks. If you feel that this is a true nerve injury, it also on the oral boards and in real life may be a good idea to get a neurologic consult set up for this patient. That sounds great. All right, let's turn to uh, maybe a less common block these days, but a really interesting one, and and I think that does come up on exams sometimes, the beer block, that's B-I-E-R, beer block. Um, So, Hassan, uh, tell me a little about a beer block and how long it lasts. All right. Uh, So the beer block, um, you know, especially, you know, since we started talking about local anesthetic toxicity, making sure we don't have intravascular injections, some of our trainees might be confused when they see a chapter in regional anesthesia books that says intravascular regional anesthesia. Like, whoa, what's going on? Right. So it's – what we're talking about is a beer block. Um, It's used for uh, distal upper extremity procedures. Um, and you don't need an ultrasound uh, to do it. So the idea is that it provides intense anesthesia for shorter cases, uh, usually under an hour below the elbow. All right. A double pneumatic tourniquet is placed on the arm after an IV is started in the hand. The arm is elevated and exsanguinated. Uh, the proximal tourniquet is inflated, and typically a large volume, about 50 milliliters of 0.5% lidocaine, is injected over two to three minutes with a block onset of five minutes. 
After 45 minutes or potentially sooner, tourniquet pain will develop, uh, at which point the distal tourniquet, which is over the anesthetized skin, is inflated and the proximal cuff is deflated. Sounds great. Um, and then uh, what kind of questions do we see about these, Carol? So as mentioned, believe it or not, there are still questions on the beer block because it is easy for providers to do without the ultrasound. So even some surgeons will do this. The questions have tended to revolve around last syndrome management, that's the local anesthetic toxicity, and around max dose questions based on what local anesthetic you're giving and the weight of the patient so that you can do some calculations. Last syndrome itself is a very large topic and it may lend itself um, to a future podcast that we can that we can talk about. But we just wanted to mention it here because the beer block does come up in questions. Great. And then the last uh, one I'll ask you about, Hassan, are superficial cervical plexus blocks. Uh, superficial cervical plexus blocks, tell me what those are and how they work. All right. So the uh, superficial cervical plexus block um, can be done uh, to anesthetize the uh, uh, cape uh, over the clavicle and to the shoulder, and it's good for uh, coverage for a carotid endarterectomy. Classically, those were those uh, were done under nerve block primarily because that's the best neuromonitoring possible, right? Your patient's awake. Absolutely. Um, uh, that's uh, fallen a little bit out of practice. There are multiple variations to that. Um, the other thing we'll see in orthotrauma as well uh, is uh, midclavicular um, fractures that aren't going to be covered with an interscaling nerve block. They need a little extra coverage for the medial portion, and that can be covered with the superficial cervical plexus nerve block. Um, it's also important to uh, note in the carotid endarterectomy example, if it's a block that's going to be, uh, if you're going to have a surgery done under uh, primarily under block, um, it's not sufficient just to do the superficial cervical plexus. You'll have to have a good relationship and cooperation with your surgeon, make sure they can supplement local anesthetic. And if you're going to do this with ultrasound, how do you do it? So with uh, ultrasound, uh, you you basically start off at the level of the interscalene nerve block, and you identify the sternocleidomastoid uh, uh, muscle on the medial side of the screen and inject local anesthetic underneath uh, the SCM, the sternocleidomastoid, and raise it up. And that sort of infiltration will uh, envelop your superficial cervical plexus. Great. Well, that sounds fantastic. And Kara, is there anything that uh, you would say to kind of sum things up here before we sign off? Absolutely. So overall, upper extremity blocks are a pillar of regional anesthesia, and they can provide a range of dense surgical anesthesia or um, post-op analgesia that can be used as a wonderful adjunct to your multimodal pain management plan. We want to be safe, appropriate, and we want to take into account the perioperative process to make sure it's the best approach that we can do for our patient. Um, It was such a pleasure to be here today, and we enjoyed putting together something educational to help you pass your exams and understand the importance of regional anesthesia in and outside of the operating room. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Thank you both for being here. I think this is great. I definitely want you to come back to do uh, a lower extremity uh, podcast, and then we can uh, do all the other stuff we still have to cover, truncal, neuraxial, all kinds of uh, exciting stuff. This is just super, super useful, really well covered um, today and heavily covered on exam. So I really appreciate you coming in. Thanks, guys. Thank Thank you. you so much.
All right. That was fantastic. I learned a ton. Reminded me of a lot of stuff. I don't really do a ton of regional anymore, um, but certainly reminded me of a time when I did. And I can't stress enough how often this stuff comes up on the exams. So huge thanks to Kara and Hassan for coming in and doing this. Let us know what you thought. Go to ACRAC.com. While you're there, you can check out the new website. Uh, It looks a little different, a little different color on the logo. See what you think. Um, and uh, also let us know what you thought about this episode. What do you do for these blocks? Anything you want to add. We can all learn from the comments that you leave at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Also, if you are a fan of the show, consider going over to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. Even if you already have, if it's been a little while, you can think about leaving another one. If you would like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also go to paypal.me slash ACRAC and leave a donation anytime you want. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Brian Park for doing the outlines on some of the episodes. And, of course, our original ACRAC music is by the one and only Dr. Dennis Quo. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com where you can hear a bunch of the stuff that he has composed and put together. It's really fantastic, and we are grateful to him. All right. That is it for today. Thanks so much for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Drs. Segna and Reyes, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.